Um, good evening, City Gates. Good evening, as they say. Um, tonight, we are tackling uh, a little book in the Old Testament, which is a refresher for me, because the last couple I've had to preach were... The first one was 66 chapters. The second was 48 chapters. This one is three. So that's, that's pretty awesome. But the book uh, I get the privilege of preaching tonight, it's called Zephaniah. And uh, Zephaniah is a crazy book. Um, it's, in some ways, it's a, it's a summary book of so much of what we have encountered in this section of the Old Testament called the Prophets. Um, and in some ways, Zephaniah, he, he's the last um, of the prophets in the order in the, in the Bible that we see uh, of the minor prophets where uh, he's prophesying right before the actual exile when Jerusalem is finally destroyed by the Babylonians. And um, so he has some interesting to, things to say. I, have, I believe I have the uh, Bible Project video queued up. Um, so if we could play that and you guys get a, can get a summary of the book before I dive into it, that'd be great. The book of the prophet Zephaniah. <clears throat> Zephaniah lived during the final decades of the southern kingdom of Judah. It was when King Josiah had attempted to bring about real change in the land by removing idols and restoring the temple to the worship of Israel's God alone. But Israel was just too far gone. Worshiping other gods was too entrenched in the life of the people. And it ended up that Josiah's pride led him to a tragic death on the battlefield as he set Jerusalem on a collision course with Babylon. And Zephaniah, he had seen all of this coming. For years, he had been warning the leaders of Jerusalem. And this little book is a collection of his poetry summarizing his message. It's designed to have three main parts. The first focuses on the day of the Lord's judgment coming on Judah and Jerusalem. The second part is about the day of the Lord's judgment on the nations and Jerusalem again. And then the third section explores the hope that remains for the nations and for Jerusalem on the other side of God's judgment. The first section opens with the shocking reversal of Genesis 1. So God's good, ordered world is going to descend back into disorder and darkness and chaos, becoming uninhabitable once again. And as you keep reading, you realize Zephaniah is developing all of these powerful poetic images to describe how Jerusalem's world is going to end. All of the city's institutions for worshiping the gods of the Canaanites will be destroyed. All the leaders who perpetrated injustice, all the economic centers where crooked lending and borrowing took place, all of it will be gone along with the city's walls. Zephaniah develops these almost apocalyptic images to show the significance of what's going to happen. It all refers to a great army that is coming to take out Jerusalem. Now it's interesting that Zephaniah never mentions whose army God's going to use to bring this judgment. Now we know from the other prophets, Micah or Habakkuk, that it's Babylon. But Zephaniah never mentions that. And it's because he wants to highlight God's role in orchestrating the rise and fall of the city. And actually that's what gives Zephaniah hope. Not that Jerusalem as a whole can avoid its fate, but in the closing poem of section 1, he calls on anyone in Jerusalem who would seek the Lord. And he says these will make up the faithful remnant, the people who could be spared if they repent. In the second section, Zephaniah widens his focus to include the nations around Judah. So the Philistines or Moabites, the Ammonites, even the Assyrians. He accuses all of them of corruption and violence and arrogance. And he predicts that all of them will fall before Babylon too. 
And what's shocking is that the final people group targeted in this section are the Israelites in Jerusalem. It's like the leaders and prophets and priests of Israel are so corrupt and violent, so estranged from their God, that he doesn't even recognize them as his people anymore. And so this section ends with God's final decision. He says he's going to gather up all the nations, including Jerusalem, and pour out his burning indignation. God's justice becomes this consuming fire that devours evil from the land, which is really intense. And so the following line that brings us into the final part of the book comes as a total surprise. We discover that this burning fire of divine judgment is not aimed at destroying people. Rather, its purpose is to purify the nations, including Jerusalem. So the section begins as God says that he's going to heal and transform the rebellious nations into one unified family. And that after being purified, they're going to turn from their evil and call upon the name of the Lord. These images point to the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12, that God would find a way to bless the nations and Jerusalem as well. The conclusion of the book focuses on the restoration of the city at the center of the nations. God's presence is there in the restored city, along with that faithful remnant that's been humbled and transformed by God's mercy. And they're called to sing and rejoice. And then in this striking image, we're told that God is a poet who wants to sing too. Your God will live among you and he will celebrate you with songs of joy, Zephaniah says. The closing poem of the book ends with these very powerful images about God gathering up into his his family, the outcast and the poor and the broken, where he exalts them into a place of honor. And that's how the book ends. This little book of Zephaniah, it contains some of the most intense images of God's justice and love that you find anywhere in the prophets. His justice is about his passion to protect and to rescue his world from the horror of human evil and violence. God won't tolerate the horrible things that humans do to each other and to his world. But he brings his justice in order to restore, in order to create a world where people can flourish in safety and peace because of his love. And so Zephaniah forces us to hold together these two aspects of God's character, his justice and his love. And he wants us to discover that together they contain the future hope of our world. And that's what the book of Zephaniah is all about. Yeah, I love it when they summarize it like that, eh? So good. Um, so I said earlier, I was really relieved to the fact that I, I would only have to preach a book that's three chapters long. And that was great, but I was kind of reminded uh, this afternoon as I was finishing up my prep of what something Vic said last week. When he said that the message that he preached was like getting blood out of a stone. <laughs> and my issue was not so much that this week. It was more like trying to organize an ocean. Um, because it... it there was just so much that I was finding in Zephaniah that I wanted to share with you. But I, I can't do that. I can't show you everything I would love to. And so I have to leave a lot on the cutting room floor. But in the midst of that, um, all that prep, my week was just, it felt really full. I felt really busy. There was a lot going on. Um, I don't know if you had a week like that this week. Um, and so when I came to um, my prep the last couple couple days, I, I realized I was being confronted by Jesus um, with some stuff. And part of it actually came through a phone call that I had with a friend. And I was on the phone with a buddy, and I was realizing there's a, there's a big theme in Zephaniah about seeking the Lord, looking for God. And I just asked him, I was like, I was like do, you, do you 
feel like you've, you've seen that in me. You've heard that in me. And he's like, well, you know, I, I hear you. You're praying about certain things. You're, you're trying to figure certain things out in your life. You're trying to change in certain ways. But in terms of just like spending time seeking Yahweh just for who he is, just to love him, just to know him, that's not something I hear, I hear in you a lot these days. And so I just want to pitch the question to you before we start, because I think it's, it's actually really relevant to Zephaniah, what Zephaniah identifies as the problem in Judah and Jerusalem, and in really in all of humanity. And do you, ever, do you ever realize that you just don't care about God and about the things that he loves the way that you should? You find that you're, you're far more excited, far more interested um, in a whole lot of other things. Things are good. But when you, when you hear maybe the good news of the gospel, you hear about Jesus' death and his resurrection for you. The grace is free. It just doesn't hit you like it once did. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't get you in the heart. And as I was prepping, I was realizing, you know, I can have all of this information. I can, I can see all these beautiful things about the truth about who God is and, and, the, and the bigness of his justice and his grace but I got a problem if I don't if I don't love him. And the the question is because what, what do you do in a situation like that where you find that you just don't you don't care like you should? Maybe you feel a little bit guilty about it. But it doesn't it doesn't create a kind of consistent um, change. And that's actually the situation that Zephaniah finds in in himself. I don't know if you felt this when you watched the video, but in a lot of ways, Zephaniah is a, it's a pretty consistent prophet message. It's like, you guys have ditched God. He's going to bring justice on you. There's hope in the end. And almost when I was prepping for that, I was like, man, how am I going to say anything new? What's, what's fresh here? This feels like the same thing. It's just like regurgitated over and over and over and over again. But there's this theme about complacency in Zephaniah. And if you turn to Zephaniah chapter 1, if you look... Um, down uh, verse 12. I'm going to start kind of in the middle, and then we're going to work backwards, and then we're going to jump forwards. And it's going to, I hope it makes sense as we go. He says this. At the, he says, at that time, at this certain time, that's what Yahweh says, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. In my Bible, there's a little footnote. Um, it's a little number four. If you have an ESV, you might see that. It says in Hebrew, are thickening on the dregs of their wine. And the image is basically like, I don't know if you've ever left wine or some other drink out, and you leave it out for a long time, maybe you don't put it in the fridge, and it starts to thicken up and kind of congeal and just like get kind of gross, and it's not really slippery, it's just kind of studgy. I don't know if that's a word, but you know what I'm talking about. And, and basically, Zephaniah, you're always saying through Zephaniah that that's actually, that's kind of what complacency is like. It's, you're kind of, it's kind of gummy and kind of like, you're just kind of dull and not, not really interested in the things that you should be interested in. He, he, then he says what this looks like in, in, your, in their heart. He says, those, the people who say in their hearts that Yahweh will not do good, nor will he do ill. But he says, their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. And though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. And though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them which is really interesting. It seems like these people are, actually, they're about something. They're about a kind of good life. They're, they're interested in, 
in making their houses better. They're interested in getting lots of vineyards so they can throw lots of parties for people, but they're not, they're not interested in things that maybe, maybe they know in the back of their mind that they should be really focused on, that they should love Yahweh with all their heart, all their mind, and all their soul, and all their strength, and that their neighbor as themselves. Or maybe they don't. Maybe they really genuinely don't care. And for me, as I was thinking even about the process of my week, I was thinking about, man, like, I've just been really busy. And for me, busyness, when I get too busy, it's quick for me to get exhausted. I spend too much energy. And then often that ends up me going to entertainment for rest and for rejuvenation, which often means that I'm distracted from the things that I should really be focused on and caring about. And then that often can lead to a kind of loneliness. Sometimes you go on that track for a long time and then you stop and you realize, oh, I kind of feel empty. And maybe it's sort of niggling at the back of your mind. Maybe it's a little bit more present to you. And then maybe you realize when you're, when you're really stuck, maybe you get really to the end of your exhaustion, you realize that there's actually some pain there. And then sometimes you don't want to tell people about your pain because you're, you're kind of proud. You don't want to be honest about that. That feels vulnerable. So you isolate yourself from people. And then the problem really starts to build. And then you get into a place where you're just, you can't see the light. You can't see how it's going to get out. And you always like, I'm going to, these people, I'm going to judge them for their complacency, for their focus on the things that they shouldn't be focused on. And, and also for another reason, if we wind back up to verse 7, Yahweh says this. He says, be silent before the Lord Yahweh. For the day of Yahweh is near. And that day of Yahweh idea is really important in the book of Zephaniah. And he says it, it, he says it looks like this. Yahweh has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. Sometimes when we think about sacrificing the Old Testament, we just think it involves like slaughtering an animal and then burning it. But actually in ancient times, and even, even actually in lots of religions today, sacrifice is actually not just about you know, killing an animal and setting it on fire. It's, it's actually about having a massive barbecue. And the whole idea is that you're actually having dinner with the God that you're worshiping, and you're doing that as a community. And so it's actually, it's actually a big party, um, as much as it is about establishing or re- recognizing that there's been a reconciliation, a, connect, a reconnection between you and your God. And Yahweh says, I'm throwing my own party. And it's really important because he's like, my party is, is the best one. It's the true one. It's the one that actually is going to connect everybody the way that they should be connected and give you the joy that you are meant to have and meant to be looking for and all the things that um, you end up looking for it elsewhere. And he says, so what's this is actually going to look like, and Tim Mackey alluded to that in the, in the video, is actually uh, a flood almost, a kind, of, a kind of flood. In verse 2, Zephaniah says, he, he talks about how Yahweh says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares Yahweh. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away birds of the heavens and fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares Yahweh. And he says that it, it's specifically the people who if we could jump down to verse 5, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, that's the stars above, those who bow down and, sw- and swear to Yahweh and yet swear by Milcom, which is the name of a, a, a Canaanite god, those who have turned back from following Yahweh, who do not seek Yahweh or inquire of him. 
This is really important. Yahweh wants to make sure that he's first and only in terms of the place, the, the person and the power that his people trust. And it's not just because Yahweh has a big ego. <laughs> it's not because he's self-centered in a way that uh, doesn't care about other people, that, doesn't, that isn't interested in, in the things that we need or even the things that we want, the good things that we want. It's because actually, and we're going to find this out at the very end of Zephaniah, it's because Yahweh wants our deepest joy to come from him and to come in knowing him and experiencing him and seeing in the ways in which he's provided and the way he cares and the way he's involved in all these different aspects of human life. So Yahweh's throwing his own party and he's, he's going to clear away everything that's in the way of that. And the reason that this is personal for Zephaniah is, is, a, particular, is a particular reason and it, it actually comes out in verse 1. If you follow, we're still going a little bit backwards. The word of Yahweh that came to Zephaniah, the son of... And you have this weird instance. This is the only time in a prophetic book where you actually have a genealogy that's in the first verse. But it's, just, it's significant, and you'll see why in a second. The son of Cushi, that's quite a name, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. Now, that's an important name. The reason you know that it's probably the Hezekiah, and if you don't know who I'm talking about, Hezekiah is actually a, a former king of Judah, which means that Zephaniah is actually part of the royal family. Um, Zephaniah, or Hezekiah is, so basically Zephaniah is the great-great-grandson of Hezekiah, who was a good king. Um, and, and Zephaniah is prophesying in the days of Josiah, the, kind of, the, son, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So he's prophesying in the days when his cousin is on the throne. So Zephaniah is at the top echelons of, of Jewish society. He sees all the inconsistency in terms of the, what, where the people say they worship Yahweh and that they worship all these other gods, or they act in a way that doesn't love their neighbors, doesn't actually take God seriously. And so he's, he's particularly interested in that because he, I, I, I imagine that he sees the way his friends and family in the upper echelons of all his society, the people who are proud and the people who are complacent. He sees the way they party, and he sees the way that they don't actually care about people the way that they should. And so that's, it's particularly personal for him. And he knows that there's a, there's, a, there's a coming judgment on the horizon. And he doesn't want his people, his family, and his entire nation to be stuck and caught flat-footed. Because the thing is, is, when we get careless, there's consequences for that. One of the best ways to shock someone out of a sense of complacency, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, is to actually show them the consequences of their, their actions. Sometimes that doesn't do it. Sometimes you can, I don't know if you've ever had an experience with somebody where you're, you're, you're trying to get them to realize that the, the course they're taking is going to wind up in a really bad place for them. And it's really discouraging when you say that to somebody and they're like, meh. It sucks. But so... What, what Zephaniah does, he's like, well, okay, if, that, if that's not enough for you, I'm going to show you the clock and the ticking of the time before it finally hits you. And so he keeps talking about the day of Yahweh. He keeps talking about the time that this is going to take. And he knows it's on the, on the horizon and it's coming. So he says this. He says, okay, guys, if you're going to gather... Chapter 2, verse 1. Gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation, because you, you don't care about what God's telling you about. Before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, 
before there comes upon you the burning anger of Yahweh, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of Yahweh. And I want to say a quick note about God's anger before we keep going. I, I mentioned this in my sermon on, on Ezekiel, is that God's, sometimes we have this weird thing that we do when you think that God's anger and his love are like two sides of his personality, like two different things in him. That's not, that's not the case. It's not, it's not the way the Bible thinks about it. Because, and, and it makes sense, actually, if you think about the way your own anger works. You get angry when something you care about is threatened. Or when then there's an obstacle to something that really matters to you. And that actually increases, especially when it involves someone you love. And that's exactly how God's anger works. When he gets anger, angry, it's not because he, he is, goes off the handle, he, he, has, he loses control of himself, he, throws, he flows, flies into a fit of rage. His, his anger is very precise. It's like a scalpel. Even when he does, does clear-cut measures with it. And he does it because he loves. And that's really important because you need to recognize that the God we love and serve, the God who maybe you don't love and serve him, maybe you don't know him yet or you don't trust him, the God of the Bible is a God who is a God of love. And you need to recognize that underneath his anger, and finally in terms of the, the, the deepest nature, the, the, the deepest his nature runs is, is love. And that involves anger because he wants to get rid of the things and he wants to bring justice upon abuse. And so this is what Zephaniah says. The solution is to seek Yahweh. Go look for him. You're complacent. You're bored. Are you bored of your faith? Are you bored with Christianity? So go look for him. You're going to gather together. You're going to throw a party. Go look for him together. And this is what that looks like. He's like, if, you're, if, you're, if you are interested in this, you're humble. All of you humble of the land who do his just commands, seek Righteousness. Righteousness is an old word. We don't use it in common language very much. It's a word that basically means treating people the way that you should. Treating people according to the right nature of the relationship. So seek righteousness. Seek properly, treating people properly. Treating people according to God's way, his law, what his instructions are. And seek humility. And perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of Yahweh. Sometimes I think the path from pride, complacency, where you get really uncomfortable with this, is actually fear. It's kind of like what I was saying earlier about how sometimes when, when someone is stuck in a, in a certain way, they're on a, a collision course for a really bad situation, one of the ways you get them to snap out of it is you kind of have to scare them with the consequences. That's what the whole consequences on a clock thing is. And, some, but, and the thing is, is the fear is you're not supposed to live your life as a Christian or as a human being constantly in this state of terror and nervousness and anxiety and fear. That's not what God's about. But sometimes you need to actually be aware and afraid so it snaps you out of your complacency and it snaps you out of your ego. One of the quickest ways to get off your high horse is to figure out that you were in the wrong or that the fact that you're all out of sorts about something Actually, you have no right to be. I was imagining like an analogy for this. I was thinking about how um, sometimes I, I, I experience people who uh, maybe you're not like this. I'm sure you are, none of you are, but you experience road rage. And um, I'm imagining like what it would be like if you got really, really angry about somebody in another car. You got stuck to a stoplight and you're like honking. You're like, oh, I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. And then the person in front of you steps out. 
and they just look so tired. And they look at you. And all of a sudden, they reach in their pocket and they pull out a gun and they point it at you. And they say, I just lost three triplets and my wife in the hospital. She died having birth. And I've had a very long 14-hour shift. I'm very tired. I'm just thinking about how I would feel if I was in that situation. All of my sense of self-righteousness for anger would evaporate. Because I'd realize not only I was wrong, but this guy's got a gun and he can end my life and he doesn't really care about it because he doesn't have a whole lot to lose anymore. And I mean, that's, that's a, just an example to get you to realize that sometimes fear is an important, is a, an important tool in God's tool belt to get us to recognize what's involved when we're going in the wrong way. But the thing is, there needs to be another side of it and there needs to be a, a recognition of trust because if, you ju- if it's just fear... And that's not really the way that the fear of God is supposed to work. It's not supposed to be only fear, although a genuine, actual fear of the consequences of what can happen to me if I don't turn and trust God is important. There also needs to be that other side of trust. That's also really important into properly knowing and walking with God. And that's why Zephaniah tells tells the people to seek Yahweh. And I think sometimes another thing that I really wanted to touch on quickly, um, I don't have a whole lot of time to touch on it, but I want to anyway, is that sometimes we can think of, we can be like, oh, it's this Old Testament stuff, man. Like God, judge, judgment stuff. That doesn't happen in the New Testament. We're under grace, you know. It's, we're, we're fine. And, and, it's, and it's true. The reality is, is that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, the security that you have in Jesus and knowing and knowing that he's for you, and that he's with you, and he's going to hold on to you, is absolutely secure. But the reality is, is that even as Christians, we can experience the genuine, negative, painful consequences for our actions, especially when we mistreat other Christians, and especially when we worship other things that are not Yahweh. And I wanted to give you a a quick example of that. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 11 that really actually deals with this head-on it's a story about um, Yahweh, or Paul is reading, he's, a, he's a, one of Jesus' messengers. He was writing to a church, and they were really treating each other poorly in a bunch of ways. But one of the ways is actually in the fact that they were totally ignoring people who came to the Lord's Supper late, because they had to work late. Often they were not as well off economically. And he basically says this. He says, that these, well, these richer people, they would basically go ahead, they'd eat the Lord's Supper, um, verse 21, so in eating, each one of you goes ahead with his own meal. This is 1 Corinthians 11, verse 21. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And then just a bit further down, he says, whoever therefore Verse 27, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. Verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning, recognizing who's in your family, who's, who's in the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then he says this, this is crazy. Verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. What? That's crazy. Jesus takes loving each other really seriously. You might be like, wait, so how does that work with grace? Well, Paul actually tells you. 
Verse, verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, this is the kicker, verse 32, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And that word condemnation is really, really important. I don't know if you know the verse, Romans 8, verse 1 says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So sometimes God is so concerned actually about your salvation that and when you are on a collision course, you're actually hurting other people. You're going you're gonna to sin yourself in a, if he didn't take care of you out of actually trusting him. He will kill you in order to save you. That's crazy. That's a real deal. And so we probably should fear him, but we need to trust him too. And this is where Zephaniah goes. Sorry, give me a second. I lost my my place. Um, There we go. Hi, guys, Zephaniah. You'd almost think that in the the buildup of this expectation of God's judgment, which he kind of comes out in verse 8, therefore wait for me, declares Yahweh. All you people who are seeking Lord, wait for me for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. And you'd think looking at this, and I've been, we've been talking about judgment a lot. You'd think about, you think, man, that sounds like everything is going to end. You're always just going to bring the end to everything. And then you read verse 9. For at that time, the day of Yahweh, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. That all that, and this is the why, that all of them may call upon the name of Yahweh and serve him with one accord. One of the things I love about this book is right in the middle of the, of the moment where you think it's darkest the time that looks like it's the, it's the most stark in terms of God's judgment is actually the, the time in which he's purifying things. He's clearing out what's in the way so that you can actually, the, the, the people who do not deserve it, who least deserve it, who are under, who rightly deserve his justice and, and wrath can experience the fullness of his grace. And what he does, he's, who, who does it? Do they change their speech? No. <laughs> I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. I'm going to indulge myself and double-click on that for a second. This is really cool. So that word pure um, is, is or that word, uh, let's start with the word speech. That word speech shows up in a very particular place early in the, in the Bible story. It's in Genesis 11. I don't know if you know what happens in Genesis 11, but I'll tell you anyway. Genesis 11 is the story of the Tower of Babel. And what happens in that story is that human beings get on an empire-building project. They decide they're going to create the most amazing tower um, that's going to be a picture of the greatness of their society. They're going to make a name for themselves. Um, and they have one language, one speech. Um, and, and so that's going to be what is going to enable them to do it. They get so over-focused on their own technology and they leave God out of it. And God looks at it and he goes, this is not going to go well because they've left me out of their whole empire building process and then they're going to basically exalt themselves so they think that they're in my place and then they're going to commit nasty, horrific injustice because they, that's what happens when human beings leave God out of the picture. And so what God does is he actually confuses their speech. With Zephaniah right here, he uses the same 
word. And part of the reason you know that he's got that in his, in his head is because right down he, he, in verse 10, he says, from beyond the rivers of Cush, which is uh, an ancient name for Ethiopia or Sudan, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. And that word dispersed is the word that's used to describe what God does to spread all of these people all, all over the face of the earth. And so what Zephaniah is doing is he's actually prophesying a moment that happens in the New Testament. And it's when the Holy Spirit falls on Jesus' community who, are, who, are, who have watched him ascend into heaven. And then they all start speaking in different languages. But even though there's different languages, they're speaking the same thing. And it's the glory of Jesus. And it's because they recognize who he is, that he's purified a people for himself, that he's died for their sins, and he's been raised to new life so they can live a whole brand new existence. And Zephaniah is seeing that too right here. And not only that, in verse 10, one of the things I love is, I mean, let it never be said that biblical religion is a white person's religion. (laughs) Because the glory of the fact that Jesus is interested in all peoples, like he, Zephaniah straight up prophesies the conversion of Africa in this, in this verse. And not only that, but everyone beyond that, which is, includes all of the continents of the whole nation, you and I, everybody who's standing here, Zephaniah has us in that verse. And he says, on that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you rebelled against me. Why? For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst the people humble and lowly, and they shall seek refuge in the name of Yahweh. Guys, I think the solution to, on one level, the solution to recognizing that you've been complacent and egocentric is realizing that there's genuine real consequences for that. God loves you too much to leave you walking in a way that's wandering all over the place. And so that he, so he's going to bring his consequences on that. But when you recognize that and you feel guilty, you feel ashamed, you feel stuck, you're like, man, you're man oh man, why? Why did I do this? The goodness is to recognize that God intends for that to be that's actually a movement of his own action and grace in your life. And that's actually a part of him bringing you into the party. Because Jesus promises us this. In John six thirty-seven. says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All. That means everybody. <laughs> that the Father gives to me. Don't ever think that Jesus and his Father feel two different ways about you. That Jesus is somehow like the nice member of the Trinity. <laughs> I spent way too long my life thinking that. Thinking that somehow Jesus had to convince God the Father to love me. It's not true. The Father gives you to Jesus first. And what's the promise? Will. Definitely will. Not might. 
will, will come to me. That means if you trust Jesus and you're ready to come to him, you will get there. Why? Not because of you. Not because you pulled yourself up by the boots, your bootstraps. Not because you, you know, put a plan together and you talked to the right people and you spoke to the right experts. You, you prayed the right prayers. You did all the right disciplines. No, ultimately it's because Jesus is after you. It's the best news in the world, guys, to realize that God has called you to seek him and then finding out that he's been coming after you the whole time and he was coming after you before you ever started looking for him. And that's the nature of grace. And whoever, do you want to know know an incredible spiritual exercise that you can do? You You will not fail to be encouraged if you do this. You go look into the Gospel of John and you go count up. You go look for all of the whoever's in the Gospel of John. It's like one of his favorite words. Jesus is constantly like, whoever wants to come can come. Come. I don't care who you are. I love that word, whoever. Doesn't matter your socioeconomic status, doesn't matter the color of your skin, doesn't matter if you, you like the way you look or if other people like the way you look or nobody likes the way you look. Doesn't matter what you've done, who you are, and where you're, you think you're going to wind up. Whoever comes to me, you don't, have, you don't come to a set of teachings, you don't come to a bunch of doctrines, you don't come even to a church, you don't even come to a community, you come to Jesus. You come to a person. Thank God you don't worship a set of ideas. Because you can control that. And honestly, if it's up to you to control that, you're not all that strong. That's not a great place to be. You need someone who's way more powerful than you. You need someone who's way more kind and gracious than you are. And Jesus is both of those things. Whoever comes to me I, other people might cast you out. They might kick you out. But I, Jesus, will sometimes, no, it's not what it says, never, never cast out. Do you feel like you don't fit in? Are there places in your life you feel like you don't fit in, a party that you don't feel like you belong to go to, you shouldn't be at? you're not cool enough, you didn't do the right things, you didn't spend your time right. Not Jesus' party. And that's why in Zephaniah, he says this. Verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem, because Yahweh's taken away the judgments against you. Guys, the reason that's happened for us is because of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's the only ground of it. It's not because he did anything right. He has cleared away your enemies. Verse 17, Yahweh your God is in your midst. He's right there with you. A mighty one, a warrior. I love the Hebrews. Gibor, a Gibor who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. You ever had an experience where somebody's loved you so much it made you quiet? <laughs> you, just felt, you just felt at peace because you were like, wow, this person loves me. 
And here's how he shows it. He will exult over you with loud singing. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking, actually thinking about Brian. I hope he'll forgive me as I say this. <laughs> One of the things I love about the way Brian leads worship is sometimes when I'm, I watch him do it, I just watch the way that the Holy Spirit has gifted him, and it feels like he's, he's singing over us. And I just feel like in some ways that's such a beautiful picture of God the Father. That he is so happy with what he is, he's gotten in you. And where he knows he's going to take you, no matter where you feel like you are right now, that he sings over you. And guys, that's the party that Jesus came to get us to bring us to. That's the party at the end of the world. And when we get together, when we come to worship Jesus, we're actually trying to get a foretaste of that party right here. And Jesus promises that to us. Another great exercise is go look at all the times Jesus has a party in the Gospels. He does it all the time. And it's, and it's awesome, and there's reasons for that. It's because you, you are meant to be welcomed into a kingdom. But if you ditch Jesus, if you say, I don't want anything to do with you, I want to build my own life, I want to build my own Babel, I want to build my own empire and my own kingdom, you do not get to go to that party. And if you say to yourself, oh, it's up to me, it's up to my merit, my own knuckling it my way there, yeah, you don't get to come in either. Because Jesus wants the glory for himself. And that's safe for you because then you, never, you don't wind up trusting in yourself. Jesus gets all the glory. He was the one who, who did the whole thing in bringing you home. And so I want to, just as a practical encouragement, guys, I think one of the things that I did wrong this week in not remembering who I am, remembering um, the goodness and the grace of the gospel is that I didn't rest enough. And we live in a city that prioritizes the rat race. And so, I, I mean, just for my own sense of needing to repent, I was like, you know what, I need, to, I need to, I've done this before, but I need to actually shore up my own Sabbath practice, setting a day where I recharge. I don't just entertain myself. I don't just relax and do nothing. But I, I, I do things, I connect with, with friends and family who will encourage me and remind me of Jesus' grace for me. And, reach, and, and eat good food and be thankful for it and, and love the people around me. Because the thing is, we can't remember this stuff if we don't have room for it. So that's what I want to leave you with tonight. Make room to remember and make space to rest. And that's the book, Zephaniah. I'm going to pray quick and then we'll, we can go into the rest of our evening. Jesus, thank you for this. Thank you that you love us too much to leave us um, headed in, in bad directions. Thank you for singing over us because of what Jesus has done for us. Thank you for your promise that all who come to you, all, all that you're given will come to you and whoever comes, you'll never kick out. Help us to walk that out in that assurance and that confidence. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thanks, guys.